looking forward to some other families coming up and uh, taking the risk of bringing their children up and singing. That's good. All right, be turning to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verses 35 through 45. Just mark that place for now. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. The message will be the servant is the greatest. The servant is the greatest. Now last week we discovered in God's word something opposite of mankind, that Christian joy is really found in our ability to give, not to get. Even the world knows the joy there is in giving, especially at the season of Christmas, or should I say the season of getting, after all, isn't that what we teach our kids of, to get this and get that? Or maybe it's simply a trading season. You say not, but every Christmas there's talk of gift limits and gift exchanges, and there's commonly expectations of someone getting you something, and if not, you feel slighted. You think about that a little bit, but I'm not slighting Christmas and its wonderful traditions that bring people close together. But the Bible tells us that giving is a one-way street to give, hoping that there's nothing in return, that we might get it in heaven, our return, to give subconsciously, not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing, to lay your treasures ahead where they are secure and not on this earth, to avoid the praise of men in your giving by doing things quietly and humbly and not to be seen of men lest you receive your reward here. Today's message is closely tied to the joy in giving. And that is the way to greatness is through serving. It's through serving. Let's talk about some of the great people of position in our day. In government, we think about what? Presidents, governors, congressmen, etc. In ministry, we think of the great speakers with large audiences that are on the radio or TV. Businesses have their own set of great achievers. In sports, we may think of Tiger Woods in golf, in baseball, of Babe Ruth, or perhaps in hockey, you probably all think of the same name, Wayne Gretzky, who has been given the title of the great one, the great one. But let me ask the question, what is earthly greatness based upon? What is the foundation of earthly greatness? It is human nature to be something great in the world's eyes. It's in our nature. As little children, we aspire to do some great work and be recognized for it. Here are the top 15 jobs that children aspire to when they grow up, what they want to be when they grow up, according to a web job site on May 20th, 2020. Dancer, actor, musician, teacher, there's hope. <laughs> scientist, athlete, firefighter, detective, tells you what's on TV right there, writer, police officer, I think that's probably dropped a little bit, <laughs> astronaut, pilot, vet, lawyer, doctor. Where do they get these ideas? What the world advertise as prestigious jobs or what parents portray as greatness, I'm afraid sometimes it comes from us. It's through these sources 
and their innate desire in them to be something great in this world. That's how they view it. That would be something great, outstanding to be greatness in the world. It's interesting that there are no spiritual jobs listed. <laughs> Pastor, evangelist, missionary, those aren't on the top of the list. For those who aspire to or who have obtained worldly greatness, I have some humbling news for you. Number one, at best, and, it, and I don't even know if it could be this, it, it, it can only last the maximum of a lifetime. For most, it will be short-lived. There's a saying that everybody will have 15 minutes of fame in their life. Fame and greatness are fleeting things. There's that word fleeting again. <laughs> Number two, earthly fame or greatness must be maintained to keep its position of greatness. Once you can't compete at the top of the highest level, you lose your seat. Extraordinary efforts must be taken to maintain a competitive skill set throughout your life to be at the top that age will eventually defeat. A great businessman man, may have many admirers for his ability to lead a company that can pay high wages and benefits to his employees. But one business mistake or even an unavoidable circumstance can cause a great business to go into bankruptcy and the owner to receive hatred from its employees and creditors. Earthly fame and greatness is not a loyalty-based position. Rather, it is, what have you done for me lately mentality. Earthly fame and greatness is expensive. To whom much is given, much is required. Number three, you can't truly take credit for your greatness. You have to pretend or, pre or perhaps rule over people to falsely prove greatness to yourself. People who believe they are great must do this by play acting to the audience of self. You convince yourself of your greatness, uh, AKA President Putin. But it is all unwarranted and here's why. Your greatness is only existent because of others. It is others who make you successful. You alone are never the reason for success, the sole reason. You are only a small part of your success and the larger your success is, the smaller your percentage becomes of your success. <laughs> Let's take Jeff Bezos, who's the founder and chief executive officer of Amazon. Let's remove the executive officers and his directors. Now that would probably be enough to see that place crumble. Now let's take away the 350 or so VPs in the company and now let's take away his 1,608,000 employees. But we're not gonna take everything away from him. We're gonna let him take his $179 billion, his net worth in cash with him. But Better than that, we're going to give it to him in gold and silver because that's going to be more applicable for the greatness test we'll give him. We will even give Jeff all his current capabilities and exceptional learning capability and let's give him the life of Methuselah, 969 years we're going to give him. We're going to see how great Jeff is. However, we will put him on a deserted island 
with nobody there but himself in a world that has no people, no other people living in it. What do you think we would find at the end of the 969 years? And our imaginations could go crazy there. What would the great Jeff Bezos have created? What would his Amazon be? It should be 100 times more greater than his original Amazon with a starting business capital of $179 billion and almost 1,000 years to work with it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, perhaps you have some grand vision of a Swiss family Robinson set up with exotic treehouse mansion and a crude car carnival cruise ship and animals trained as servants operating plane ships and delivery trucks bringing the best of everything from all over the world to his doorstep. If your imagination thinks that, that is still not all Jeff Bezos' greatness. We need to think, rethink our test. Let's put Jeff on the island as a newborn baby, the original boss baby. Would the great Jeff Bezos have survived? Now, those of you who are fighting me with this <laughs> may have a story of a little newborn Jeff who was taken in by wolves and raised of their own and taken away in his childhood by a partner named Bagheera and a panther named Bagheera and a bear named Baloo who the group skillfully made their way through the dangers of snakes, crazy monkeys and King Louis VIII and then fended off the great tiger Shere Khan to lay the child at the doorstep of his great start in business after all called the Amazon. <laughs> or perhaps I mixed Jeff up with the great Walt Disney, I'm not sure. If this is your imagination, it's still not all Jeff Bezos. Let's put Jeff on the planet Earth when the Earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. He's swimming. <laughs> now let's see how great he is. Even that would not be fair because Jeff Bezos would not be anything if God did not create him and put the purposes, desires, abilities, resources, people, precise circumstances, and precise timing in life for him to be who he is in the world today. And that through the resource of Jeff Bezos and Amazon, my wife can joyfully humble our bank account by having things dropped off on our doorstep on a regular basis. I know these people by first name, these delivery people, you know? I, I have conversations with them, I know their life. You know, you don't really need to make up a fictitious story to see how Human greatness is unwarranted. You see, there's the story of a Babylonian king in the Bible. And Daniel, I won't have you turn there. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. And all, this came, and all this came upon the king, Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom? by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. While the world word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And in the last verse of that chapter, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven.
all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Now we could probably end the message right here. In total humility to a wonderful, almighty God who is in control. We could end all our thoughts of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and pride and give God the worship he deserves like Nebuchadnezzar did. But we're only going to give a spiritual pause right here. Sorry to say, you get, there's a lot more coming. <laughs> a sila, a sila, just to let that soak in. But let's read our scripture text where we see Christ's apostles struggle with the subject of greatness and hear God weigh in on what is true greatness and how to attain it. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35, if you've kept your thumbs there patiently. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatever whatsoever we shall desire. That's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> what do they got up their sleeve? And Jesus and he said unto them, what would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with, Shall ye, with all, shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called to them, called them to him, and said unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, may we... Catch a true vision, Lord God. May we, may we be changed. May we desire change. May we ask for change in our thoughts and our minds of, of how we operate in this world. To desire to live the life, the life of a servant, as our Lord and Savior did. We get so easily caught up in man's ways of thinking here. So I pray, Lord God, that you just speak to our hearts today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text, we see two disciples, James and John. Now, usually you see three, don't you? Peter, James, and John. Peter's kind of discluded here. He's part of the other ten. Just kind of keep that in mind here. <laughs> They're trying to get the best seats in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, I've got an imagination, so they're at the box office. They're going straight to the top guy, see if they can get the top seats there. We also know that the other ten apostles are not happy with James and John, not because they were embarrassed for James and John for seeking the wrong things. You know, sometimes we see people do dumb stuff and we feel for them. I get embarrassed for four people sometimes when I see them do something really crazy and wrong. That was not their thoughts. Because they had the wrong heart also. And they were resentful that they were get, that these two were cutting to the front of the line to get special seating. That's where they were. They had the same problem. We see here that even the apostles, the closest to Jesus, had misunderstandings about greatness. Now this incident gave Jesus the opportunity to teach them how to be great. Now I need to make a brief point here. If you are considered great in this world, I mean, we could have somebody here who's just filthy rich, comes to church here or whatever, has lots of things. That does not mean that you forfeit greatness in the kingdom of God. Greatness on earth and greatness in heaven are separate things. After all, we see men in the world that are counted great, and yet they were great in the sight of God as well. For instance, there was the centurion. Captain over a hundred, who was great among the believing Jews because he treated them kindly and even built them a synagogue. He had position and finances. Yet in the incident of the centurion coming to Jesus for healing of his servant whom he loved, Jesus found this man to have the greatest faith in Israel. Wow. <laughs> of all people. The apostles were great men in the world and highly revered. They had great spiritual status. We see in the scripture where men bragged on them. I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. We have preachers of today that we lift up as wonderful expounders of the word of God. Yet that does not annul them for greatness in heaven. Should we forget wealthy Abraham and David? Highly revered. By men, Was there greatness at a cost of greatness in heaven? No, I would say on the contrary, no. But we also know of renowned men recorded in the Bible that would come at the cost of heavenly greatness. Yea, some even unto eternal damnation. There was Pharaoh. There were the kings of the nations. Even Satan himself is considered great. But greatness on earth is, an, is appointed by God for a temporal purpose. God may choose you to be revered as great, to have people under you, to have authority, to have great wealth. But what will make you great in heaven is not the position you have been appointed to, but first the acknowledgement that your exalted position came from God, first of all. Then the motivation of that position is that of a servant to God and to mankind. And may I say that every one of us has an exalted position to some extent. Perhaps as a position in your job. You may be the boss, the leader. Perhaps as a position in church. As a parent. Perhaps as an older sibling or babysitter. Unless you should feel discluded, we all have an exalted position as a customer. After all, does not the merchant wisely realize that he is servant to the customer? If not, he loses his business. 
So as a customer, you have an exalted position. How do you handle that position of a customer? May I say it is hard to be a man of humility when you are exalted, but not impossible. Booker T. Washington was a renowned black educator who was an example of a man who held his exaltation in a servant spirit. Shortly after he took the presidency of Tuskegee, Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking in an exclusive section of town when he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing the famous Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. Because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled, then rolling up his sleeves, he proceeded to do the humble chore she had asked. And even further, when he was finished, carried, carried the logs into her house and stacked them by the fireplace. A little girl recognized him and later revealed his identity to the lady. The next morning, the embarrassed woman went to see Mr. Washington in his office at the Institute and apologized profusely. Profusely. It's perfectly all right, madame, he replied. Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. She shook his hand and warmly, she shook his hand warmly and assured him that his meek and gracious attitude had endeared him and his work to her heart. Later, this lady and some of her wealthy acquaintances joined in donating thousands of dollars to the Tuskegee Institute. The great apostle Paul was another example. Yet God had to take extreme measures with him to reserve greatness for him. God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. A great difficulty that Paul asked God three times to remove. But God knew that this physical issue, as hard as it was, would keep Paul humble in the service and secure eternal greatness far above this temporal, fleeting, menial greatness that can be achieved on earth. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, and, and Paul says, Unless I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. In our text, Jesus taught his disciples that the path to greatness was through a heart of serving God and others, regardless of earthly status and wealth. So all of us actually have equal opportunity for greatness in heaven. I want you to think about that. Even the poorest of us, even the lowest of us, have great opportunity. Let me remind you of the words of our Lord as he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in under the offerings of God, but she of her penury or poorness, hath cast in all the living that she had. Now I'm going to give you five short points 
on how to become a servant and attain true greatness. First of all, number one, it is God who exalts in heaven. Mark 10.40, but to sit on my right hand, on my left hand, is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Now, I, I kind of, like I say, I, I have imaginations. <laughs> you know, I, I think of, you know, companies coming. The, the, you know, it, the church is, is going to be coming and seated, and, and, and the Lord sets the table, but who sits where is not for him to decide. If Jesus, who said he goes to prepare a place for us, which we've just read, that where he is, we will be also, who also said all power is given me in heaven and earth, if he does not make the seating arrangement, it would seem that it would be God the Father who has made the seating arrangements. Now please understand that true greatness or honor does not come from man, but from God the Father himself. Now I can't remember that song and I just didn't have time to look it up to find where it was but this certain portion of this song rings in my heart and I hope portions of songs do this to you. But that little portion says nor man's empty praise. Nor man's empty praise. We will stand before God one day with all man's praise forever gone and we will hear God's words concerning us. And any words of exaltation or any chief seat will be based on our service to God. Mark 10, 43, but so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Number two, one thing we need to understand it's not our nature to serve. You must realize that the flesh does not like to serve. It is not the choice of our nature to serve. We seek to be served. At the Brinker family get-together yesterday, if you listen closely to conversations, and this is just not the Brinkers, by the way, you'll find a common theme. A resistance to service, a dissatisfaction for authority, a desire to retire, to get out from under servanthood. Why? It's because, it's not because the Brinkers are necessarily a bad group. It is because it is our nature. Our flesh seeks its pleasing, and anyone who gets in the way of our pleasure, they have it coming. Which brings us to the first proactive point of servanthood. We must make a willful choice to serve. Let's look at verse 43 and 44 again, and I'll emphasize a couple of words, or one word in particular. Verse 43, But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest, shall be servant of all. Notice the emphasis I put on the word will. Servanthood is an act of our will over the natural desire of the flesh. It is a choice to serve. It was Jesus' will that he came to serve. Just before his time of death, 
and this was uh, maybe a couple lessons ago, he washed his disciples' feet. As Tim Reader mentioned, it was not an unusual custom to have your feet washed by the servant, but for the master, the Son of God, to wash our feet was an unforgettable example of what our life's goal should be, to wash one another's feet, to be a servant. As a young boy, Dr. Henry A. Ironside helped his mother, who worked for a Christian cobbler. Now, this story kind of makes me want to look up cobblering and what, the, what all's in, uh, involved in that. This cobbler plastered Bible verses all over the walls of his business for his customers to see and to read the word of God. In every package delivered to his customers, he would insert a Bible track and would often share with them God's great salvation. Young Ironside's job was to pound water out of the soles of the cobbler that the cobbler had soaked. He pounded until they were hard and dry and would then nail them to the shoes. The process was tedious and time-consuming, and Ironside wished for an easier method. Now, as young men, uh, man, I don't know if you're like me. I remember those days. My brother, who I was just talking with yesterday, remembering the days when he was my boss and we were on hot roofs and framing, and I just didn't want to be there. It's probably how Ironside was thinking. On his way home, he came across a cobbler who fastened the wet soles on the shoes without hammering out the water. The cobbler's reasoning, the customers come back quicker that way. Ironside told his boss about his, this faster method. <laughs> Just like young kids. <laughs> uh, but his Christian employer took out his Bible and read, whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all to the glory of God. He went on to say, hammering might be tiresome work, but I will not let anything go out of my shop that is not well done. God has shown me how to cobble shoes, and I want to do it to glorify him. When I stand at his judgment seat one day, I want to hear him say, His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Now this is a story that's removed and written down in books. But a pastor that I was under, Pastor Cornette, would tell of a story, of his story, of his father who was a mason, who was laying foundations. They didn't have a whole lot of money or anything. They were pretty, pretty poor just doing physical jobs, and he would lay a concrete block. And he did a house, and he said it began to sprinkle rain a little bit. It wasn't like a major downpour or anything, but it, it kind of pitted the, where the cement is between the blocks and it just pitted it a little bit. He said, it would have been fine. He said, my dad took every block down, chipped every piece of concrete off, and relayed that house. Think about that. Not only do we need to make a willful decision to serve, we need to ask for inward change to serve. See, again, it's not in our nature to choose to serve, but we must also understand it's not in our natural ability to serve. Our default is to be served. True service is a work of Christ by the Holy Spirit that lives in us. 
It is only something that God can do. Philippians 2.13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. How do you receive inward change? You have to let it. You have to let it. You have to allow it in. Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. When we let the mind of Christ be in us, he causes us to think like he does. Because our thoughts are not his thoughts. That seems to be the recurring theme, doesn't it? Romans 12:2, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. The third proactive point, which is actually point five, and the last point, embrace the cause to serve. Embrace it. Sometimes opportunities to serve just land right in our pathway. Something happens within our family, and we just, you know, we're the ones to help and to, and to do, and we're, and we're there, Right? But many times we need to make the conscious decision to seek for opportunities to serve. It requires, folks, this is part of it, getting out of our comfort zone to purposely meet the needs of others. Jesus did not sit back and wait for people to come to him. Matthew 4.23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Matthew 9.35, And Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. You need to get involved with people in people's lives. Those who aren't Christian, let, let it trouble you. Let it change you. It's not a comfortable position. I, I had a hard time calling David Chin. You know, he's not a Christian. I mean, I enjoy him in one way, but, you know, I can't help him because he, he's just not willing to trust the Lord as a Savior. But yet, I stay in contact enough where it bothers my soul, where I can pray for him. Then he said unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. 
God is looking for people to go into the harvest, to go to serve. It's not going to come to you for the most part. You're going to have to go and seek it. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. What are some practical ways to step out and serve? I'll just give you some, some very simple things. You know, and actually I, I took a brief part of this message to the home up there and you think, and I think, well, how? I asked them, I said, how can you serve here? I said, you're in a place where you're being served because it's assisted living because you can't do something. So you're getting served. How can you serve? There's always a place where you can serve. I said, I said, I, you know, I don't, just a few things I could think of. You can just clean up after yourself. So leave your plates there, take, clean up, wash table, maybe wash another table. Find out, you know, what will help the nurses. Maybe clean up your own room the best you can. Because you got a lot to do. You know, there's, there's all sorts of things, praying for people. There's, there's a lot, even when you're in assisted living, where it seems like, and, and, and a lot of times in these places, they, they don't want you doing things. You're not allowed to do things. They kind of handcuff them, you know, and even in some simple things. But there are things that you can do. But for us, supposing a guest comes in a church. Mrs. Reeder does a good job at this, I noticed. She greets them, welcomes them, and makes them feel good. It's just a gift God's given her. But sometimes maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to step out of your comfort zone. And just introduce yourself and say hello to them. Visit or call a widow, a shut-in, or someone at close to home to encourage them, make a friend there. Send a text or make a phone call to let somebody know you're praying for them. Or just encourage them. Volunteer to help someone with a church project or maybe a personal project. Write an encouraging note to someone. My wife's pretty good at this. She's pretty sensitive uh, to God about, about that. She looks for those opportunities. Give someone a track. Invite them to church. These can be uncomfortable. Approach someone with the sole goal of getting into a spiritual conversation. Have you ever walked out of the door and said, this is going to be my purpose today. I'm going to go up to the store up here. i got to do this. i got to do that. But I'm looking for someone to get in a spiritual conversation with. If you go with that attitude, you'll find somebody. I'll about guarantee it. You, you'll be able to talk to somebody. So the message, true exaltation is from God alone. That's the only thing that's, that's worthy of giving your life for. Exaltation from God is achieved through servanthood. That's something that's totally unnatural to us. Therefore, we must make the choice to serve. We must ask for the ability to serve by letting God do it through us. And we need to intentionally serve something that may be very uncomfortable to us. So with heads bowed and eyes closed and the pianist coming, I pray that God spoke to your hearts this morning about being a servant. But I tell you what, nobody can be a servant until they're born again because you not have the power to do it. All you can do is drum up man's abilities. And as we saw on Sunday school, it's fleeting, it's 
it's not much. So first of all, make sure that you're truly saved. Remember to seek God's exaltation and that he is going to exalt you because of you being a servant. And to make that choice, it's a willful choice. It's not going to happen on its own. You're not going to just grow into it. You have to choose to serve. You have to ask for the ability. Let God do it through you. And then we need to intentionally find ways to do that, even jumping out of her comfort zone at times. No turning back. No turning back. Thank you, Katura. She and Abby and those who play the piano have very good songs during invitation to think about. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the message and the reminder that Jesus came for us. And he showed us that we should serve others. Help us to remember that in life and what a joy it is. It is tied closely to giving. They kind of go hand in hand. So, Father, help us to be like you. And I know I can ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.